0: Okay, to get started, I want to remind everybody who might be taking the the endocrinology test today that our test is going to be on Wednesday. It's not Monday. It is going to be Wednesday. So worry about endocrinology today. Start worrying about immunology tomorrow. Right? The, I said before, right, all these Camtasia things, all this recording, right, that's on the Blackboard site right now, all the links, right. So, it's only on the Blackboard site if you want to get the links so that you can take those lectures and do whatever you want with them. And the other part was I told people in the laboratory yesterday, right, that those people are taking the test in the laboratory. And I'm, I'll keep reminding everybody about, you know, what we need to do and how we're going to be able to do it. So, when we left on Wednesday, we were talking about neutrophils. We were talking about how neutrophils kill things in an oxygen-independent manner. Things like lysozyme and other secreted molecules or the acidic pH of the, of the phagolysosome. We'll talk about phagolysosomes today, right? And they also had an oxygen-dependent ability to be able to destroy invaders, and that was the respiratory burst, production of reactive oxygen intermediates. We're going to take atmospheric oxygen in the presence of NADPH oxidase. (laughs) NADPH oxidase is going to be able to rip apart electrons from oxygen. The ultimate uh, sort of acceptor of those electrons will be oxygen, and when oxygen accepts those electrons, it's going to become superoxide, right? the superoxide anion. And the superoxide, superoxide anion is a, whoops, it's a free radical, right? And free radicals are, are very reactive. It has an unpaired electron, right? That one-paired electron is trying its best, or, the, or, the, or the, the free radical itself is trying its best to be able to get those electrons back. So it's going to try to get those electrons from wherever it can. So, it's going to start to interact with proteins, it's going to start to destroy proteins, and right, so all of these free radicals are very reactive. See, I'm not very good with my PowerPoint, so I have all those other things that are just hanging there, but we'll get to those in a minute. So, we've generated this superoxide anion, but we can do more things with it, right? If we take a couple of those superoxide anions in an acidic pH, right? and that's what's happening inside that vacuole, as that phagocytosis takes place, we can start to generate hydrogen peroxide. Okay. Probably every single person here in your medicine cabinet at home has hydrogen peroxide. Okay. Neutrophils, your immune system has been using hydrogen peroxide for probably millions, if not billions of years. We've only started using it in the last hundred years or so. Right, so we're going to make hydrogen peroxide and we're going to j- liberate some oxygen and this oxygen can go right back into this reaction to generate even more superoxide anions. If we take that hydrogen peroxide with oxygen and in the presence of iron, right, Fe2 is, a, is the, the soluble form of iron, we can start to generate another free radical, the hydroxyl radical. So the hydroxyl radical and other sort of intermediaries, we're going to be able to generate oxygen. So another free radical, right? Another very reactive species that's going to start ripping proteins apart or ripping, right, sort of molecules apart that are in the general area. So anything that's inside that vacuole is going to start to be destroyed. If we take hydrogen peroxide, and if in the presence of chloride ion, and clearly we're going to have a whole bunch of chloride ion, right? Because that's what sodium chloride is all about, that's what salt's all about. In the presence of an enzyme that's inside one of the granules, right, of the neutrophil, and that enzyme is called myeloperoxidase. Myeloperoxidase is a very important enzyme. About 5% of all the proteins inside the neutrophil is myeloperoxidase. So, In the presence here, we're going to generate water, and we're going to generate hypochlorous acid. Another sort of very powerful tool. Everybody knows what hypochlorous acid is? You probably have a whole bunch of it at your house. Bleach. At least that's what Madison Avenue tells us, right? Oh, you got to add this to your whitewash. You got to get your whitewash nice and clean. Got to bleach out all, you got to kill all those <gasps> germs. All right, so neutrophils are also going to use bleach to destroy an invader, all right? It's like a, an infomercial, but wait, there's more. If we take hydrogen peroxide and if we have right some iodine ion present and it's an acid pH, myeloperoxidase is going to catalyze that reaction. We're going to create water and iodine. What's the, well that's, you go and you look up bleach, that's what it's called. I, <laughs> that's that's the, the, the sort of the generic term. Well actually, the generic term might be Clorox but the more, you know, sort of descriptive term is hypochlorous acid is bleach, right? So we can also generate, right, from sort of normal sort of intake, right, iodine that we're going to get from food products and so, right, we can't make iodine ourselves with one of those uh, nutrients that we have to ingest ourselves. So we can take iodine in the form that is soluble that we need anybody taking the endocrinology test you got to know all about iodine I'm sure right and we can create iodine another constituent I would suggest well maybe not so much anymore when I was growing up right you had iodine in your medicine cabinet but I think now it's been found out that iodine might be a, a tumor promoter so before when you had a cut people used to smear it on your hand might not have been such a good idea but there could be all sorts of things right now that we're not sure are, right, that we're using routinely that are tumor promoters. Anyway, we're gonna be able to start with, right, atmospheric oxygen, that's oxygen in the tissue spaces, and we're gonna be able to make all these noxious chemicals, all these reactive oxygen intermediates, right? We're gonna start with oxygen, we're gonna rip apart electrons, we're gonna, we're gonna use those electrons in all sorts of different reactions, this is the reactive oxygen intermediates, right? Breakdown products of oxygen. And we're going to use them as a powerful tool against anything that we're collecting by phagocytosis. Right? So we have all these different things, right? All this different activity that is being able to take place. If we look at, right, sort of the the big picture for all these things taking place, right? Once this neutrophil has engulfed the invader, right? We can start with NADPH oxidase, right? Right over here, it becomes active. And that's how we can start to generate all of these reactive oxygen intermediates. And the other thing that we can generate, basically following the same sort of ripping apart of oxygen pathway, is we can also have reactive nitrogen intermediates. So we can take nitrogen and basically do the same thing we can get all sort of, of those intermediates, and they will also have killing power against anything that we're going to be able to phagocytose and bring inside our vacuole here. Right, so we have reactive oxygen intermediates, we have reactive nitrogen intermediates. So the question comes up, or the question should come up, or you should be thinking about this question, right? is why don't our neutrophils get destroyed? Right. We have this vacuole right, that's inside. We're going to take our bacteria. Somehow, this neutrophil—clearly, you know it's a neutrophil because there's the trilobed nucleus. Right. Somehow, this neutrophil is going to engulf this invader. Right? Eventually, that NADPH oxidase is now going to become activated, right? and all these things are spilling into this vacuole. But there's nothing that says right, that that superoxide anion, right, there are proteins on this bacteria, there are proteins in this vacuole, there's nothing that says that those, all of those intermediates that we just talked about aren't going to be able to destroy our own cells. Well, there are certain things that we're going to have that are going to be able to, to protect us in general. The first one is that lipids are somewhat resistant to all of these things. And most of this right, this vacuole is going to be lipid because most, right, most of the cell membrane is lipid. So we got a whole bunch of lipids on there. Yes, bacteria has lipids, but they have more protein than lipid on their extracellular, on their, on their surface, let's say, not extracellular surface, on their surface. So the lipids in our own membranes are protecting us. We contain a chemical that's called superoxide dismutase and this superoxide dismutase is going to take that superoxide anion and it's going to convert it to hydrogen peroxide. Hydrogen peroxide is a little less, right, sort of potent than this superoxide anion and we got lots of superoxide dismutase in the cytoplasm of that neutrophil. So if anything starts to take place, anything starts to get out of the way here, that superoxide dismutase is going to start to break apart and protect us from that superoxide anion that we're making. We also have a molecule that's called catalase, and that's going to get rid of hydrogen peroxide. Now catalase, you don't find catalase in neutrophils, but you do find it in macrophages. So if there are macrophages in the area, right, they're probably going to be secreting, right, there's macrophages with our beam-shaped nucleus. They're going to be secreting catalase. So if any hydrogen peroxide gets out into the environment, hydrogen peroxide is going to be converted back into water and oxygen. Right, so we're going to be able to protect ourselves that way. We also have a chemical that's called glutathione, and glutathione reacts again with hydrogen peroxide to just form water. So all these things are going to be protected, and in the other part, right? how our cells are protected, this is all going to protect us from oxygen-dependent mechanisms. We have protease inhibitors in the blood that will protect us from those oxygen-independent mechanisms. Right? They'll be able to tie up all those proteases that neutrophils are going to be able to release. Okay? So the other thing that we can sort of look at, if we're talking about phagocytosis, and I know we haven't talked, right we're sort of out, out of order here. We'll, we're going to go and we're going to describe phagocytosis in great depth in about five minutes. But, let's just assume, right, that we know something about phagocytosis, and phagocytosis is, right, we're going to take that bacteria, this cell is going to be able to sense that bacteria, this cell is going to be able to surround that bacteria and destroy that bacteria. We sort of got that down. There are certain problems that can go wrong during phagocytosis, so this is really, host damage by a neutrophil, but it can really be host damage by a macrophage or host damage by any other phagocyte, any other thing that's capable of engulfing an invader. So the first thing that can happen is called regurgitation during feeding. Right? Everybody has a pretty good feeling for what regurgitation is, right, I mean, that's what cows do, right, when they chew their... When they chew grass, they chew their cud, they basically throw it back up and they chew it again, and they throw it back up and they chew it again. That's the regurgitation. You don't like to think about it so much. When you watch those nature films, and the mother bird comes back to the nest, and the little babies are chirping and she throws up into them, right? So that's regurgitation. So that's basically what we're talking about here, right? So the neutrophils, they're getting an upset stomach, right? They can't take it so much. What can happen here is, that as this is taking place, whoops, right, as this is gonna start to take place, and let's say, let's say we quite haven't closed right, our cell membrane about this bacteria yet, right, so as those granule contents are starting to spew out, right, some stuff, right, some of that granular contents, those proteases, some of those, right, any of those uh, oxygen intermediates we talked about, they can start to, right, move out, right? The granules are going to start before it can take place. The other thing that can take place is called frustrated phagocytosis, right? And in frustrated phagocytosis, the phagocytosing, the phagos- yeah, I guess it's phagocytosing, the phagocytosing cell sort of bites off more than it can chew. So let's say we have a whole bunch of right, bacterial rods here. Right, these are all just individual bacteria. And let's say this was the one right, that this neutrophil first detected, but it's got this whole bunch of other right, sort of bacteria attached to it, surrounded by it, biofilm, whatever we want to call. We don't have enough sort of cytoplasm left, right? I'm gonna make it look really, really weird here, right? But still, we gotta keep going, we gotta keep going. So the same way that we can look at regurgitation during feeding here, frustrated phagocytosis, right? This is never gonna close off. This will never be allowed to close, right? Because it can't make that surrounding, it can't seal it off, so again, all the contents of that vacuole is going to be able to spill right out. It can't form that vacuole, so it's going to fire anyway, and the ability of those cells to be destroyed, some of them will be destroyed, but most of what's going to happen is all those contents are going to leak out. So this is another sort of host damage that can take place. So the other thing that we can look at, and we'll, we'll talk about a lot in the last third of the course, That is, we can look at things that go wrong with the immune system. And when we're talking about neutrophils and we're talking about NADPH oxidase, this is a good sort of first introduction to things that can take place. So, we got a whole bunch of different genetic diseases of the neutrophil. So, there comes a point in time, right, when, let's say, you have an infant, a new infant, you know, and the, the infant's sort of yeah, it's growing along, right, the baby's developing, everything's going well. But then, baby gets sick. Bring it to the doctor, doc says, no problem. You know, it's your first checkup. Baby looks fine, it's growing, it's eating, it's doing what it should do. You know, it's just got a cold. So, mom and dad say, okay, fine, bring it home. Baby gets a little bit better. Couple of weeks later, months later, bring it back. Doc, my baby's sick again. I don't know what's wrong, right? You know, by that time, it's like, oh, okay, well, maybe it's the same thing. But then, you bring it back again and again and again. Right? Something's wrong. There's something wrong with the immune system of the child because the child just keeps getting sick and it won't get well. If we get enough of those complaints, those symptoms, those signs, enough people coming into doctor's offices, right? again, we've got to gather a lot of information. As we gather more and more information, we can start to see certain patterns that are going to emerge. And some of these patterns that are going to emerge are that some of these children, right, can have defects in their immune system. They're just born, right? In terms of the genetic component, something is wrong. And some of the common ones have to do with, or common cellular ones, right? We're going to talk a lot about, right, sort of breakdowns of the immune system in the last third of the course. Right, so some of the common ones with cells, and neutrophils in particular, right, it's called chronic granulomatous disease, or CGD. And chronic granulomatous disease is a defect of NADPH oxidase. The patients can kill some bacteria, things like strep. Right? Strep are easy to kill, right, but with hydrogen peroxide. So these patients can make hydrogen peroxide, and the neutrophil can use it and continue with the pathway, right? And then it's going to be able to stop. So that some sort of defect with NADPH oxidase is one of them. Another sort of problem with NADPH oxidase is a deficiency in glucose 6-phosphate dehydrogenase. Right? And glucose 6-phosphate dehydrogenase is an enzyme that's used to produce NADPH oxidase. It's just another, right? It's an enzyme that's further back in the pathway that's used to manufacture NADPH. So, if a patient lacks, right, glucose 6-phosphate dehydrogenase, then they don't have any NADPH. And they can't make any of those oxygen intermediates. And if you get enough, right, of these patients together, you can start to see. You can start to classify, so this is NADPH oxidase, this is what it looks like. So you can start to see, if you get more and more information, you can start to see some of these different components. Right, We said that it was this multi-protein complex. So you can start to see that you can see all sorts of different mutations that take place. You can see all these sort of congenital defects that could be part of NADPH oxidase. And then you can start to right, subclassify patients by which particular component of that multi-protein complex are being affected. So this is one of the more common immunodeficiencies in terms of cells of the immune system. And then the other thing you can have, right, in terms of genetic disease of the neutrophil, is you can have a problem with that myeloperoxidase enzyme. So if you have myeloperoxidase deficiency, these patients lack Myeloperoxidase, right, they'll be slower killing, and they're gonna be able to overcompensate this by the production of more superoxide anion and more hydrogen peroxide, right? Because if you remember, if we, have no, we? if we have no NADPH oxidase or defect, right, all this stuff is gonna be in jeopardy. If we have no myeloperoxidase, we're gonna have all sorts of right, all sorts of this. We're not gonna be able to convert any of this back into either iodine or right into bleach, so these will start to build up. So you still are able to destroy pathogens by these oxygen-dependent mechanisms, it's just that you're not going to get down to these lower levels of destroying the pathogen with those particular chemicals. So we'll talk a lot when we talk about uh, immunodeficiencies later on, but this is just sort of the first sort of inroads to seeing things that can go wrong with the immune system, right? So far we've been talking about, oh yeah, the immune system's working fine and everything's going and everything's, you know, working on on all cylinders, but clearly things can go wrong. All right. So that might have been where we should have been by the end of today, (laughs) if, all right, so that was granulocytes, I don't care. So let's go back now. Good, thank you. Thanks. All right. So let's go back to where we should have been. This is, we got very confused here. So we talked about hematopoiesis, and the next cell that we should have been talking about was macrophages. Macrophages. Right, so we'll just start talking about macrophages now. So macrophages, right, are actually two type. Well, they're not two types of cells. They're two differential stages of a cell. But they're all called mononuclear phagocytes. They're called monocytes when they're in the blood, and they're called macrophages when they make their way into the tissue spaces. So. If we look histologically again, here's our red blood cells, here's our platelets, right? Bean shaped nucleus, right? We talked about that before. This is, since it's in blood right now, it's a monocyte. When this eventually makes its way out into the tissue spaces, it's going to be called a macrophage, right? We just need a way to delineate between this form and this form. So when this cell leaves the bone marrow, it leaves it as a monocyte. It's not fully differentiated. Once it makes its way out into the tissue space and it becomes activated, then it's a macrophage. And macrophages are going to be involved with phagocytosis, the ability to recognize an invader and engulf that invader. So, macrophages do a whole bunch of different things in the body above and beyond even what they do for the immune system. They are the major phagocyte of the immune system. Right? Their big contribution to right, the immune system is to eliminate invaders by phagocytosis. But they do a whole bunch of other things as well. One of the major things they do is they're going to remove damaged cells or junk by phagocytosis. And by junk, I mean you know, sort of degraded proteins, all sorts of other things. And it's going to take this from the bloodstream and also the tissue spaces. So one of the major things that macrophages are going to be involved with are going to be removal of red blood cells. Remember before I said that red blood cells get beat up pretty good? They have a, a life of about 120 days and they get beat up pretty good because they're being constantly forced through capillaries. So when macrophages are sitting in the spleen or wherever else they are, they're going to be able to recognize recognize beat up red blood cells. And they're going to be able to do that because, right, as this red blood cell membrane becomes more and more damaged, because right, it's being squeezed through, certain, epi- certain, not epitodes, but certain proteins, right, that are usually confined to the inside of a healthy red blood cell are now starting to be exposed on the surface of this broken, beat up, and old red blood cell. And that's when the macrophage is going to clear those red blood cells. Right? we'll talk about why it needs to clear these red blood cells. Right? It's very important that they clear these red blood cells. The other thing that they can do is they can kill microbes, right, in terms of phagocytosis, and they have a whole bunch of secreted chemicals A whole bunch of different proteases that they're going to be able to release into the bloodstream that'll be able to kill microbes. They're involved with cell mediated immunity because they can communicate with other lymphoid cells. They have receptors on their cell surface and they're also able to secrete, we talked a little bit about cytokines and interleukins, those communication molecules of the immune system. So they can release cytokines, they have receptors for cytokines, all the other cells of the immune system have receptors for cytokines, so they're involved with cell-mediated immunity. And they're also basically a secretory factory. They can secrete over 75 different products, either different enzymes or different uh, uh, proteases to destroy invaders different cytokines, they can secrete complement molecules, they can secrete clotting factors. When macrophages are out in the tissue space and they're close to where uh, some sort of traumatic event took place, it can release complement and have complement and be involved with the destruction of the pathogen. It can use these clotting factors to be able to start, well, we'll start with the stoppage of bleeding. How about that? It's going to use these clotting factors, right? to stimulate the coagulation cascade to stop bleeding and to start with scab formation. So they're a very sort of powerful cell in terms of their ability to do things. The other thing that people started to notice early on, if we're going back to all those anatomists, uh, somebody who studies anatomy is an anatomist. whatever they are, people who study anatomy, right? So when we were talking about those individuals and they were looking at the lymphoid system, as they were looking through tissues and looking through organs of the body, they started to see cell forms that looked just like monocytes or macrophages. And they started classifying these after they looked through the literature and somebody put it all together. Right, the people were classifying cells and other organs that look just like macrophages. So if you start looking in the liver, you can see cells that look like macrophages, and Dr. Kupfer was the first one to do it, so he calls them Kupfer cells, bless you. If you look in connective tissue, right, tissue of the skin and, and the tissues, you can see macrophage-like forms. They're called histiocytes. In the lungs, they're called alveolar macrophages. In the kidneys, they're called mesangial cells. And in the brain, they're called microglial cells. It's called part of the mononuclear phagocyte system, or the MPS. And it's a system because they all share a similar morphology, right? That bean-shaped nucleus, they have granules, they have the blue-green cytoplasm. They're all capable of performing phagocytosis, right, the uptake of large particles, and there's also another ability, it's called pinocytosis, and that's the uptake of solutes, right, phagocytosis is for taking big chunks and pinocytosis is for taking small little sort of chunks, it's like taking sips, right, so that's the uptake of solutes. And they're all involved with immune phagocytosis. Because they all have those receptors. They all have FC receptors and complement receptors. Remember, we talked about that when we were talking about complement, and we talked about opsonins. And we're talking about that bacteria is either going to be coated with complement or antibody molecules. So the macrophages, right have those FC receptors on their surface. And I'll make it look different. They also have, complement receptors on their cell surface. So they can, they can recognize right, an invader all by itself. They have receptors on their cell surface to be able to recognize bacteria without having any sort of opsins on them. Because right, again, we don't want to wait. If this macrophage is out in the tissue space and it comes upon a a bacteria and that bacteria isn't coated with anything because it hasn't been detected yet or there's not a lot of complement in the area or antibodies haven't come into the area yet, we don't want that bacteria to get a free pass. So we have normal sort of phagocytosis where this cell is capable of recognizing that invader without using any of those opsonic signals and then we have immune mediated phagocytosis via the complement receptors and the FC receptors. So it can do all of these different things, and they can all do these sort of things. So they're out there, right, doing phagocytosis in all these different places. So in terms of the development and and sort of ontogeny of the macrophages themselves, they all come from the bone marrow, so it's going to be released from the bone marrow as a monocyte It's going to be in the bloodstream for a couple of hours or so. It's going to, right, go into the blood for a a series of, right, couple of days as a monocyte and then it's going to go into the tissues and that's when it's going to differentiate and become a macrophage. So if we look at this this whole system, we have macrophage-like cells in the brain, we have clearly we have uh, monocytes and macrophages in the blood we have monocyte we have ma- macrophages right in the in the spleen we have it in the in lymph nodes they're all over the different places and again just like mast cells right when we talked about mast cells those are the granulocytes right they arise in the bone marrow and then they travel into the tissue spaces we're not really sure how they know which tissue spaces to go to or uh, how they know where to go same thing with a monocyte. Does, are there certain signals inside the bone marrow that a particular monocyte will be activated with, and then that monocyte knows, uh, ah, I gotta go, right, I gotta go to the liver. I have to go to the kidney. I have to go into the lung. I'm gonna make my way into the, well, they don't really make their way into the brain. Let's forget about the brain. The brain is a wacky organ, right, with the blood-brain barrier. Right? How does that monocyte know I'm destined to go to that lymph node and take up residency in that lymph node, as opposed to the monocytes that's right next to it leaving the bone marrow at the same exact time, and that other monocyte is going to make its way to the kidney, or that other monocyte is going to make its way to the lung? And we don't know a lot about the specific target signals that are happening in the bone marrow or even in the periphery, to to sort of direct those monocytes to become residents of all these different tissues. Okay? We really have no idea about how that works. Okay. So that would have been the end of Okay, so just stay with me. We're still making our way. So now, this is where we should have been the other day. Let me find my notes, and you can find your notes. And now we'll start, we'll finish up talking about macrophages themselves, all right? So, right, everybody on the same page now? All right, good. Sorry. Sorry about the confusion, but for some reason, all right, this computer wouldn't open macrophages on Wednesday. So the major sort of thing about macrophages is phagocytosis, the ability to recognize and destroy an invader. Now, phagocytosis is well known in the animal kingdom. We have lots of different cells in the animal kingdom that can phagocytose. One of my favorites when I was in middle school or going to high school, remember when you went out, this was before you had MCAS and everybody taught to the test. This is when, right, teachers in high school and middle school could be they could do all sorts of things and you went to the pond, maybe you went to a pond and you got a, uh, an eyedropper and you sucked up some pond water and you brought it back to school and then you put it onto a microscope, right, and you saw all those protozoans that were living in the pond. My favorite protozoan was the amoeba. Right? The amoeba was sort of that gelatinous cytoplasm, right, it sort of crawled along everywhere and it would just basically eat all sorts of different things. Right? That amoeba would come up. Well, it was sort of this gelatinous looking blobby sort of thing, right? And it, it clearly it has a nucleus because it's a protozoan. But then that amoeba would come up and its favorite target. Right? Everybody knows the amoeba's favorite target. My second favorite protozoan. Has that little oral groove right there, and clearly it has a nucleus. The paramecium, right? And that amoeba, right? The amoeba is going to engulf that paramecium and it's going to use it as a food source. Right? That's the way the amoeba eats. Right? Our phagocytes don't, well, I don't want to say that because some, actually a couple of years ago somebody asked me a question and said, well gee, do our macrophages get any sort of energy from eating any of these pathogens? Right? Sort of like this amoeba did? That was a pretty interesting question. I don't know that anybody knows the answer to that. We could have a whole new level, a whole new things to be able to study. But anyway, right, so here we're going to digest this and use this. We will have eaten this for some energy. Our phagocytes are going to be able to destroy invaders for our protection. They're going to engulf those invaders and destroy those invaders. So if we start looking at phagocytosis, we can start to see a whole bunch of different sort of stages that can take place in phagocytosis. We're going to do this kind of experiment a lot. We're going to take a dish full of macrophages. We're going to take a pipette tip full of bacteria. We have our stopwatch, and we're going to add those bacteria to those macrophages, and we're going to start our stopwatch. How do those macrophages react after 30 seconds? How do they react after a minute? After 5 minutes? After 20 minutes? After a half an hour? After 24 hours? We're going to see this timeline of things that can take place. So what we're going to be able to see, and again, this this is a very modified timeline, because clearly, right, those bacteria have nothing to do with opsonization, right? Here we're talking about immune-mediated phagocytosis. So we're assuming, right, that this bacteria is already opsonized, We have either complement or antibody molecules on the surface. So some sort of opsonization has to have taken place. When that is present, what's going to happen is, right, that macrophage via the FC receptors or the complement receptors are going to be able to recognize and then start binding to that invader, and once the recognition and binder takes place, then it's going to be able to ingest that invader, and that first vacuole is called the phagosome. So if we're looking at our, well, let's not look at our bacteria. So as this bacteria is, well, that doesn't look like our bacteria, as that bacteria is sitting in there. That's the phagosome. It's just, the, it's just what we're going to call that particular vacuole. We have a lot of descriptive terms for a whole bunch of different things. So a vacuole on the inside of a macrophage or a phagocyte that contains a foreign invader is called a phagosome. The next step along here is there are certain organelles inside the cytoplasm of a a phagocyte, that are called lysosomes. Not to be confused with lysozyme. And lysosomes are granules that contain all sorts of nasty chemicals. We're going to have all those different proteases. We're going to have all sorts of chemicals in there that are going to lower the pH inside that vacuole. So that phagosome fuses with the lysosome And now it becomes a phagolysosome. And again, right, this is just sort of a description to be able to discern from, right, our phagosome with our bacteria in it and a bunch of lysosomes inside the cell. So we go from phagosome the phagolysosome. So we're getting all sorts of movement inside the cell. We're bringing all these lysosomes from all over the place into contact with the phagosome so that when this fusion takes place, right, these lysosomes are going to be able to release their contents into this phagosome. See how much better phagocytosis sounds if we talked about this first, before we had to talk about neutrophils, but you get the idea. Right. And then killing, macrophage is going to burp and then digest this. And then it's going to excrete it at the end. Right. So we will have killed right, the invader. And then we're going to secrete it and get rid of it. Picture is worth a thousand words. Hello, there we go. So right, here's this phagocyte. Now in this picture, we've put chemotaxis in here as well. Right? So this is another thing, right? this phagocyte is moving towards the bacteria, right? recognizes it, some sort of adherence takes place, it becomes activated, right? we're going to get cytoplasmic streaming, the initiation of phagocytosis, here's the phagosome, right? the bacteria inside with all the granules, all the lysosomes around the area, fusion for the phagolysosome, the contents spew out into the phagosome. Well, Spewed into the granule because now it's called a phagolysosome. Invader is destroyed, right? And that looks sort of like Homer Simpson burping, right? And then it gets rid of everything else. Right? So we have all these different stages that we can set our stopwatch with. Okay. So macrophage to be able to do all these things, it right, has a whole bunch of receptors on the cell surface. So we talked about the Fc receptors. Right, so it has FC receptors for the FC portion of IgG, IgM, IgE, IgA, right? IgG is the predominant one. We have a whole bunch of different types of these FC receptors. So we have high affinity for gamma, right? That's gamma for the gamma heavy chain. So FC receptor gamma-1 binds uh, IgG-2A, has a low affinity, FC gamma-3, right? FC receptor-3 finds IgG1 and IgG3, so we have all these different sort of specificities for all those different subclasses of those IgG molecules that we talked about. They're going to be used for all sorts of different sort of things. We have those complement receptors, so there are our opsonic, uh, 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 opsonic receptors for recognition of an opsonized, for FC-mediated or or immune-mediated phagocytosis. Because we have FC receptors and complement receptors. We also have right cytokine and lymphokine receptors, those cytokines. We have receptors for different mediators inside the bloodstream. Things like fibrin and thrombin and plasmin. These are all major proteases of the coagulation cascade. That's how the macrophage is going to be involved with right, clotting blood and for the ability of of the macrophage to aid the coagulation system. Another major thing that's on the surface of macrophages are iron-binding proteins. Things like transferrin and lactoferrin. Transferrin and lactoferrin are the way in which iron gets shuffled around inside the bloodstream. Macrophages are acutely involved with iron recirculation. So, when this macrophage is over here and it has detected this red blood cell and it has to get rid of that red blood cell, yes, it's got to get rid of it, yes, it's got to digest it, yes, we got to get rid of those used up red blood cells. If not, right, we would just be walking old red blood cells. The other thing that the macrophage is going to do as it does that is it's going to take hemoglobin, right? Hemoglobin is going to be digested, it's going to be degraded, and the only thing that macrophage wants from the hemoglobin is that iron. You know that that iron ion is at the active site of hemoglobin. That's what makes hemoglobin work. Right, that that iron ion is in the middle of the protein and that's what's binding to oxygen, that's what's binding to carbon dioxide. We don't manufacture iron by ourselves. We need to get iron from a different place. And the major place we get iron from is our multivitamin. No, no, I mean that's what, that's what Medicine Avenue wants you to believe, right? But clearly, a thousand years ago, people weren't using multivitamins, right? So, we get iron from other dietary sources, right, or the ingestion of, right, sort of metals and things. We're not eating cans, but you get the idea, right? So, since iron is something that we need to get from an outside source, we have this very fine tuned mechanism to recycle iron. We're recyclers, even at the cellular level. So, this Macrophage is going to store this iron in a very specific protein inside called ferritin inside and it's also going to be able to interact with iron that's being transported right by, by those iron transport proteins. And then this macrophage will make its way back to the, to the bone marrow and during the manufacture of new hemoglobin and new red blood cells, it will recycle that iron we're going to talk about iron recycling on monday when we talk about the, uh, the 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 ability of inflammation right to happen inside the body so we have all these different things we have all these different activities right activities way outside of the immune system in terms of the molecules that it can secrete right it's going to be able to secrete lysozyme plasminogen activator right plasminogen activator activates plasmin right the first stage of coagulation so it's involved again it's involved with all aspects of coagulation it can also secrete a whole bunch of different proteases and one of the major proteases that it does secrete is a specific collagenase macrophage collagenase right collagenase breaks down collagen collagen is part of the basement membrane collagen is the building block Right, with collagen and elastin. Right, it's the architecture that holds all of our tissues together, holds your skin together. So we have neutral proteases, and more specifically, macrophage collagenase. And it can also secrete a bunch of complement components as well. Right, not just the liver. And again, as macrophages are around in the tissue spaces, they're going to be able to secrete all these different things that might be needed out there in the tissue space. The other part about macrophages, like all the other cells we've been talking about, except really the, the, the neutrophil, right? we talked about immature forms inside the bone marrow, we haven't seen any sort of breakdown of mature neutrophils, but we can see different activities of different stages of macrophages. So we have what are called M1 and M2 macrophages. So that initial inflammatory response right, of those macrophages recognizing everything and phagocytosing, those are carried out by the M1 macrophages. So the M1 macrophages are involved with sort of killing tumors and and killing, right, parasites and phagocytosis. But then we also have, right, and again some sort of switch is going to take place, we also have macrophages that are involved with the resolution phase of the immune system. So macrophages are out there to be able to destroy pathogens and they're going to stay out in the tissue space, like bean-shaped nucleus, they're going to stay out and when they start to release collagenase, they're going to be involved with tissue remodeling. When you get a paper cut or you got a paper cut a month ago, where is that paper cut anymore? You have no idea where it is anymore, right, because you were repaired. We have the ability to repair ourselves. Macrophages are involved with that because they're gonna secrete things like this, collagenase and elastase. They're gonna break down, right, the area that was traumatized by whatever, right, sort of insult uh, caused that cut. And it's gonna be involved with tissue remodeling. You're gonna be able to bring, right, unless you got some hunk and cut, right where you're going to get some sort of scar macrophages are are involved with scar formation as well right so you'll always know where that where that wound took place but with small things and again like a paper cut you have no idea where that paper cut was because your macrophages and your immune system was there to rebuild you all right we'll talk about the last couple of pages of this we'll talk about inflammation on Monday I will post this uh, lecture with Camtasia later on today. Enjoy your weekend. Study hard. Yeah? I don't know, you can, you can, whatever you want, whatever you need to get to describe what you're talking about. So yeah, if you don't want to say, if you don't want to say neutrophil, if you want to say PMN, feel free. Okay. I was just wondering, uh, there was two links for each lecture um, audio, so is the, the podcast something I can download to my iPod? You know what, I, oh, hold on, <laughs> we don't have to broadcast this to the rest of the planet.